With every story we hear, listen to, read, or tell, we make basic human connections that help define who we are. Welcome to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast devoted to those stories that tell us who we are when we're in the dark. Listen closely now. The dark is speaking, and the need to be heard never dies. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of Afterwards Paranormal. I'm your host, Shelby. On this episode, I will be reading The Ship of Ghouls by J.B.S. Fullalove. The sea has always been full of mysteries. It's a place where fortunes are uncovered, countries are discovered, and ghosts and tales of the supernatural abound. Let's look at some famous ghost ships and their strange mysteries. The Mary Celeste On November 7, 1872, a captain his wife, two-year-old daughter, and seven crewmen set out from New York to Italy aboard the Mary Celeste. A month later, the British ship Di Grazia caught sight of the boat drifting in the Atlantic. The crew went on to the Mary Celeste to help, but found it completely empty. Six months' worth of food and the crew's belongings were still there, but its lifeboat was gone. The ship's floor was covered in three feet of water, but that was far from flooded or beyond repair. It's become one of the world's most famous ghost ships, thanks largely to the fact that Sir Arthur Cannon Doyle used the boat as inspiration for his short story, J. Habakkuk Jeffson's Statement, with theories from pirates to mutiny to murder. The Carol A. Deering the Carol A. Deering cargo ship and its 10-man crew successfully made it to Rio de Janeiro in 1920, despite needing to change captains when its original one fell ill. But something strange happened on its way back to Virginia. A lighthouse keeper in North Carolina said a crewman who seemed confused reported the ship had lost its anchors. Through his telescope, the lighthouse keeper saw the rest of the crew was, quote, milling about, Strangely, Carol A. Deering was spotted the next day near Outer Banks, South Carolina, in an area strange for a ship on its way to Norfolk, Virginia. The following day, a shipwreck was spotted. Rescuers found the food laid out as if they were getting ready for a meal, but the crew's personal belongings and their lifeboats were gone. The federal government followed leads on pirates, mutinies, and more but they all came up fruitless. The M.V. Joyita In 1955, merchant ship M.V. Joyita set off on a two-day journey in the South Pacific. It would never reach its destination. The ship's rescue team's search found nothing, and it wasn't until a month later that another captain spotted the partially sunken ship. There was no sign of any of the 25 passengers and an investigation deemed its doom inexplicable. The Mummy Ghost Ship 
When Filipino fishermen boarded a seemingly abandoned yacht in 2016, they weren't prepared for the sight they would find, the mummified body of a German sailor. Manfred Fritz Borgerat was an expert sailor, going here and there around the world for about 20 years. He had last been seen in 2009, although a friend said he'd heard from Borgerat on Facebook in 2015. There was no evidence of foul play, so a year would seem like enough for the warm, salty air to mummify the body, until an autopsy revealed he'd probably been dead for only a week. The Queen Mary Although the magnificent ocean liner is now a hotel moored in Long Beach, California, it has a full complement of ghosts. Both the spirits of the passengers and crew are seen quite often. I stayed there a few years ago with my husband and some friends and went on the nightly ghost hunt. It was awesome. I saw a shadow walk from one side of an engine hallway to the other. I was able to capture an EVP that I'll play for you in just a minute. But first, let's hear the history of the most famous ghost aboard the Queen Mary. One night in 1996, the watertight doors in the engine and boiler rooms were ordered to be closed. About five minutes later, an 18-year-old crew member from Yorkshire was found crushed in the door of hatch number 13, trapped with his arms pinned to his side. While the man was freed and carried to the hospital ward, it was too late. He showed signs of crushing injury on his arms, chest, and pelvis, and was bleeding from his nose. He was injected with morphine, but died shortly after. His ghost is regularly seen around the area now, with people reporting the sound of someone running behind them and whistling. Others have possibly made contact with the doomed crewmen, noticing spots of grease that look like fingerprints on their faces. Some have seen a figure of a bearded man in blue coveralls that looks just like the man who died out of the corner of their eyes. And several others have said that they saw an engineer wandering the hallways asking if guests had seen his wrench but when they went back to find him, he had disappeared. Here's the EVP. What do you think it says? And again, I think it says, I kissed the captain. Could it be the Yorkshire crewman having a laugh? Could it be a passenger making a confession? I leave the decision up to you. If you ever get the chance, stay on the Queen Mary and go on the ghost hunt. You will have a wonderful time. You are listening to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast that offers you dark tales from literature, lore, and you, the listener. If you are interested in contributing stories to the show, Please stay tuned after the story for details. of the dog? After all, it isn't afraid of you. 
named for an uncle, James Beverly Shaw Fullalove, was born on July 25, 1912, in Yazoo City, Mississippi. J.P.S. Fullalove's lone story for Weird Tales was called Ghouls of the Sea. It was published in March 1934, when its author was only 22 years old. Fullalove lived in Los Angeles in the mid and late 1930s. In 1937, he began a commercial fishing operation. In later years, he and his boat, the Lincoln, moved to Seattle, Washington, where he died in 1966. He wrote many other stories, which have remained unpublished. And now, Ghouls of the Sea, by J. B. S. Fullalove. Most readers of the daily papers, and especially those persons who follow with interest those accounts relating to the men of the sea, will recall the strange disappearance of the freighter K. Marie some seven months ago. They will recall the brief flurry of excitement attending her reported foundering with all hands aboard. Desperately storm-ridden and swept far off her course, she sent forlorn's appeal for aid, reporting that her rudder had been swept away and her engines seriously damaged. Nearby ships immediately put out to her aid, but her wireless signal suddenly ceased. Apparently she had drifted far, for no trace of her was ever found. In common with most others, I accepted as the most plausible explanation the theory that, in her crippled condition, she had either been swamped by the mountainous waves or driven to her doom upon some uncharted reef in unknown waters. But today, with the K. Marie farthest from my mind and all but forgotten, I chanced upon something else. As is often my habit, I had risen before the sun and gone down to a favorite stretch of beach to cast in the surf for bass. As I walked along the shore, I stumbled upon a large glass jug lying amid a pile of driftwood and debris. Even before I smashed it with my heavy sandpike, I knew that it contained some message from the sea, for through its salt-kicked sides I had seen a flash of white. And message indeed it was. Part of the manuscript was missing, but the remainder comprises a bizarre and incredible tale which I set down here precisely as I found it. The true account of the K. Marie disaster? That is for the reader to decide. Here is the account. Calm. An immediate danger is past, but we are completely cut off from the rest of the world, and there is nothing to do but wait and hope that some ship picked up our SOS and will find us before our food and water become exhausted. There are many sharks about, and to relieve the monotony of waiting, the crew is engaged for a time in fishing for them. Two were caught, and then the fishing suddenly stopped. Here is something very strange, something which arouses superstitious fears in the men. Until now, I have been unable to ascertain exactly what it is, because the men are all strangely reticent concerning the whole affair. All I've been able to get out of them is that the sharks they caught were dead. Svensson, the big Swedish mate, however, tells me that there were curious globs of pinkish jelly covering their heads, he says that Dr. Curie took samples of the stuff to his cabin for examination. It is indeed surprising that men like Svensson, who can laugh in the teeth of a storm, 
should exhibit fear at the sight of a few dead fish. I have just left Dr. Curry in his makeshift laboratory, busily engaged in working on the specimen he took from the head of the shark. It somewhat resembles a huge pink jellyfish. It has the same disgusting feel and is without definite form. Still, there are differences. This thing is continually in motion, shimmering at all times as though someone were shaking the table upon which it was placed. A mephitic odor hovers about it, and an indefinable something about it fills me with a kind of loathing and a queer feeling almost of fear. At times I felt as if it were alive and possessed some uncanny power of sight and were watching me. Dr. Curie is very much excited. He says that it is an entirely new form of parasitic growth, secreting a powerful bone-dissolving acid which enables it to get at the flesh and blood of its victims. But he, too, is at a loss to explain their immediate and deadly effect when the sharks were taken from the water. Captain Wilkes picked up a trail of smoke on the horizon this morning, but they passed us by. We are far from shipping lanes, and it is good to know that someone is looking for us. God is indeed merciful. Had the ship we sighted picked us up, what a ghastly horror might have been loosed upon the world! My fear of the strange specimen of Dr. Curie was well-founded. It is a spawn of the nethermost depths of some hell of the sea. I was engaged in working on my hopelessly damaged apparatus when suddenly a scream echoed through the ship. It was a scream of paralyzing horror and fraught with agony, but through its terror I recognized it as the voice of Dr. Curie. Perhaps no one else knew from where the scream had come, for I was the first to reach the cabin of the stricken man. As I rushed in, I saw the doctor seated in a darkened corner where, I judged, he must have fallen asleep. Only the pale rays of the moon lighted the room, and I could not see plainly, but there was something peculiar about the way he sat. He seemed strangely stiff and straight as a statue. Apoplexy instantly flashed through my mind. I shouted to him and stepped closer. At the sound of my voice, he half-turned and rose slowly from his chair. Something about his movements abruptly checked my rush toward him. The peculiar, frightful stiffness of his actions was impossible to describe. They were the movements of a reawakened corpse who tries to force worm-eaten muscles into the forgotten movements of life. With my heart still, I stood motionless and watched him as he painfully arose. Once again I called to him in a voice hoarsened by strange fear, and if in answer, he turned. At the same time, my hand darted swiftly to my pocket, and with trembling fingers I lighted a match against the wall. As it flared up, I looked into his face and sank to my knees with a low gasping cry. The flickering light of the match was dim, but even so, the first view of the horror was so indelibly stamped upon my brain that even now, days later, as I write, I can still see it, vividly, frightfully. The face staring sightlessly into mine was a white-drawn mask of insupportable agony. The blackened tongue, grown sickeningly to astounding length, protruded from half-open lips. He seemed to be trying to scream. His eyes were leaping from their sockets, and already there was forming over them a cold and ghastly glaze. The man walking stiffly toward me 
was plainly dead. And then, as the last flickering rays of the match burned out between my fingers, I saw. Until now, I had not thought of any connection between the doctor's experiments and this. I had unconsciously supposed him to have fallen victim to some new and horrible disease. But with the last dimming ray of my match, a glimmering of the incredible truth burst upon me with terrible clearness. Even then, my dazed and weakened mind refused to grasp the full significance of what I saw in all its ghastliness. The top of his head was a shimmering mask of dark red jelly, and from it I could see a long tongue of the same unspeakable stuff slithering down the back of his neck. The whole loathsome mass began to swell and grow from his skull with unbelievably rapidity. Despite the awful dazedness of my mind, I still noted the significant change in the color of the mass, and, that mingled with its grisly red, there were flecks of white and gray. As in a dream, I heard excited voices and knew that the room had filled with men. I saw the captain, with a curious glance at me, dart forward and catch the swaying doctor in his arms. Frozen in horror, I could only stare and wait. As swiftly as the movements of a striking snake, too swiftly for the eye to follow, a tongue of the dribbling mass hanging nearly to the doctor's shoulders licked out and spattered upon the captain's head. He clawed madly at his hair for a moment, gave vent to a single agonized scream, then slumped forward. He stiffened almost before he struck the floor. Then, with the same frightful rigidity that the doctor had shown, he slowly sat up then rose to his feet. The horror upon his head had sunk in, disappearing beneath his matted hair. Now it reappeared, growing, swelling like a toy balloon, a shuddersome mass of quivering, sensate jelly whose soul-chilling scarlet was thickly dotted with white and gray. Miraculously, my power of movement returned. Gasping weakly, I stumbled towards the door. I saw the thing that had been the doctor move also, and a ghastly hint of its intention thrust itself into my stunned consciousness, lending speed to my laggard limbs. Close behind me, it circled the milling, craning crowd, who still could not understand, or having seen, stood rooted, held powerless to move by sheer ecstasy of horror. I staggered through the door and sank exhausted on the deck. Behind me, the door slammed shut, and then there came a heavy sound of a body falling against it. For some moments then, there was silence. Then, from behind the door, there came the ghastly sound of scream after scream of mortal agony and horror, the sound of thudding bodies and of madly stamping feet. But now and then above the hellish din, I could hear with terrible distinctness a faint splat, splat, like the sound of wet rags falling on the floor. Only a short time I lay thus. Then I remember somewhat vaguely running madly and mingling my screams with the screams of the imprisoned men. For the madness of terror that had descended upon me was now complete. Just in time I had risen, warned by reflected moonbeams shining into my eyes, and seeing this faintly luminous, slithering rill of jelly that was flowing out toward me from under the door. When I regained consciousness later, 
whether days or weeks, I do not know. I found that I had bolted myself within my own cabin. In the fever of madness, I had stuffed up every crack and hole in the walls and door. Still, there is everywhere the indescribable stench of the things. I am now certain that I must have been insane much longer than at first I believed, for now I can detect another odor. But upon that, I dare not dwell. The picture it brings is too unutterably horrible for contemplation in my weakened state. Rotting corpses, animated by hellish creatures who supplant their brains, walking in ghastly parades across the decks. Am I alone? Outside I can hear the slow tramping of feet. Whether they are the feet of living men or of the horror, I dare not look to see. I shout, but never there is an answer. The things I hear outside number many. But there is a way out if I am swift. There is powder in the hold. If I can reach it, a match will save me through the quick death from the other end I face. Besides, the K. Marie must never be found or allowed to drift too near the land. If the things are waiting when I step outside the door, at least I shall have tried to send them back where they belong, at the bottom of the sea. When I was a little girl, we lived in California, and I used to go deep-sea fishing with my father. And I'd always look out at the ocean and wonder, what's under there? What's swimming around beneath our boat? What is it that we can't see that lurks down there in the water? I hope you enjoyed that story of one of the things that might be lurking down there in the water. There are so many great stories about ghosts and supernatural occurrences at sea. I will definitely be reading some more on future episodes. Thank you so much for joining me for Afterwards Paranormal. This has been your host, Shelby. And as always, I leave the last words for you. The zombies have reminded me of something. I'd like to ask you for a favor. If you like this podcast, and you know someone else who would like this podcast, please share it with them. We want our library patron numbers to grow and grow. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Afterwards Paranormal Podcast. Please join us on Patreon and Facebook. You can listen to Afterwards Paranormal on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Contact us at afterwardsstories at gmail.com. And remember, the need to be heard never dies.